Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Growing numbers of Christians profess to being done with attending church. What are the reasons for this and what can churches learn? In Leaving Church, published by Grove Books, Robin Stockett and S. John Dawson tell the stories of those who have moved away from traditional forms of church and consider what lessons can be drawn. On this week's podcast, I speak to Robin Stockett about the book, which is available to buy from grovebooks.co.uk. The Church Times is hosting a number of online events in the coming months. On Thursday, 21st of January, we're hosting a live webinar on clergy burnout, well-being and resilience. Tickets are £10 or £5 for Church Times subscribers. For more information and to book tickets, visit churchtimes.co.uk. The book uses this term, the done-withs. Um, who are they? I think that was a term that emerged as a result of interviews done by my friend and my colleague, John Dawson. And uh, he discovered in, in the course of his work as a volunteer hospital chaplain that he came across a number of people who'd been very involved in churches for a number of years. They'd been um, central to the functioning of churches. They'd, they'd have leadership roles. They'd uh, taken on responsibilities for Sunday school or midweek groups or whatever. And then there came a time in their, in their lives where over, over a period they felt increasingly this was no longer for them. And they said, eventually I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't need to attend this church in this particular way any, any, any longer. And uh, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna find another form of expression of faith. Um, so done with sort of a slightly sort of tongue in cheek uh, description of people who've decided for all a whole range of reasons that they, they no longer wish to be uh, members of their local uh, their local church. And I think when people stop going to church, sometimes people think that's because perhaps they've had a crisis of faith or they've just slowly stopped believing. Um, but that's that's not necessarily the case, is it? From your research, from our research, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't about about that at all really it was more to do with um, a certain weariness with church life with uh, being faced regularly with um, exhortations to get involved with this project or that project or to to give more or to volunteer to do this or to do that and and for some people it was a question of wanting to find a different expression of their faith that was couched in a different way so they left the church not because they lost their faith but they wanted to explore their faith in a in a different way in a different direction perhaps in a deeper way so virtually none of the people that we interviewed and there were 20 or 30 different groups that were interviewed over a period of time said that they'd become agnostic or they'd become atheist they just wanted to hold on to their faith in a, in a different way, in a new way. And some of them found uh, new forms of Christian community to belong to. So uh, we mentioned in our book, there are sort of local groups of people who just meet together informally. There are people who join dispersed communities like, for example, we mentioned the Northumbria community, which is based at Nether Springs up in Northumberland. 
um, people who might just uh, start attending a, a cathedral service and just sitting at the back and, and sort of dipping their toe in the water, but being more anonymous. So uh, that, that's what we discovered. There wasn't, it wasn't about a loss of faith. It was about a different way of belonging and a different way of exploring their faith. And then the people you interviewed, were they from different church traditions or predominantly from, from one? They, they were from a, a range of different traditions, I think. Um, some of them were from evangelical backgrounds, some of them were Anglican, some of them Baptist, sometimes some of them were Pentecostal. So it wasn't peculiar to one particular form of uh, form of denomination at all. And the range of ages was mainly, I think, we found that the age age range was from the mid you know, mid forties, fifties, sixties. So I don't know whether that had a, had an influence on their decision that they got to a certain stage of life where the expression of faith before when in, in their teens or their twenties no longer seemed to to fit with they where where they were at in their in their journey through life. Can we maybe unpack a few a few more of the reasons that the Dunwiths um, stopped attending church? What what were some of them you found? Well, um, if I can, I can maybe read it. From the list in in the book, um, some of the reasons were uh, a weariness with the internal politics of churches, the sense that there were there were groups or there were factions trying to insist on a particular way of doing things or, or insist that certain things always had to be done in a certain way, and that produced some power struggles between groups of people that were were expressed maybe at PCC meetings or other midweek groups um, some people felt that the topics or the subjects the issues that were dealt with on the Sunday morning were just not where they were at you know they were struggling with other life issues to do with I don't know family relationships or with identity or with purpose and meaning and they found that the applications from sermons just were not dealing with issues that they were were important to them some of them said they were tired of um, being exhorted to constantly get involved with new things when they would, I don't know whether they didn't have time or they were exhausted or they were tired of being pressurized into, into conforming to a certain set of behaviors. Some said that they found that the teaching at the root of one basic message, you must basically try harder, do better. If you're praying, pray a bit more. If you're evangelizing, do it a bit more. If you're giving, give us a bit more, you know, and you've never done enough praying, do pray a bit more. And over time, they just found that was a weary kind of message to listen to. Um, some people, perhaps in the more sort of evangelical, charismatic churches, were tired of the sense of performance, you know, a, a, a professional band at the front leading, you know, leading songs in a particular way that led to a certain emotional response. And they thought, mm, I'm no longer going along with this. Some people talked about the questionable use of finances and some just were bored, plain bored with the ritual and the routine of the same old church week after week, month after month, year after year. So they, they articulated these range of different reasons and it wasn't, none of them said this was a, a particular incident of hurt or a particular incident of, of, of abuse. It was more of a cumulative 
sort of drip, drip, drip erosion of their desire to be involved in this particular Christian community. And it maybe took maybe a two, two years, three years for this realization to dawn upon them that this was no longer where they wanted to be. During that sort of say two year period, say when, when someone's the drip drip happens, were they raising issues with, with those who led the church or, or were they able to? I think they were, yes, but I think there's a difficulty with some churches when you do raise questions and you do ask, why are we doing this? And what did you mean by that phrase? And it can make you come across as a bit of a, you know, a bit of a troublemaker, really. You're kind of upsetting the apple cart, you're, you're posing difficult questions, you can make people feel uncomfortable. Um, and I don't think these people wanted to to be portrayed in that way. And so in some cases, I suspect they just kept the questions to themselves or they talked to a small group of friends, but um, they, they, uh, it's, not, it's not easy to kind of question or even come across as undermining the very fabric of that particular Christian community. You mentioned some of those more charismatic evangelical churches, which which have the professional band and it's quite seeker friendly and we're seeing quite a lot of that in the Church of England with these sort of city centre church plants that are a lot of money's being put into um, and I don't I don't mean to sort of criticise them but I just wondered if some of the methods that are used to attract new people particularly young people and families might be the very things that those who are long-term members find wearying and get bored by and might actually put them up put them off yeah, I think I think that could be true. I think that there's definitely a place for that kind of expression of church. I think city centre churches, like you, you just described, with you know, with a praise band and money poured in, they they have a role to play, and they they certainly attract a, a, a niche community of maybe young students or young people who who would not find traditional church appealing at all. But it's just that that isn't for everybody, and just. You know, over time we all change. We grow older. We develop. We mature. We we reflect. Uh, we may have had difficult, hurtful experiences, or troubling, or even tragedy or trauma we have to deal with. And then those kind of experiences provoke questions and reflections. And you need a place to ask those questions, to articulate them, and to say, well, what is all this about? What does this mean? How does this how does this form of Christianity touch the genuine struggles and agonies and questions that I am actually facing at the moment. And for some people, they need to go elsewhere to, to, to ask those questions. So I'm, I'm not saying it's those, those kind of city centre churches are the answer. I'm just saying that they are appropriate for certain groups of people at certain times in their lives, and they're not appropriate for other groups of people at other times in their lives. This chapter in the book which focuses on church mission statements, which I think that the Dunwiths sometimes find problematic. Um, and I imagine a lot of thought and efforts put into these sort of mission statements. And we see dioceses have the same things often. Could you give a few examples of, of some of those mission statements and what your interviewees found difficult about them? Well, it was really trying to stand in the shoes of the interviewees and to imagine, okay, if if you're struggling with church and you have questions about church and you're kind of teetering on the edge and you're hanging on by your fingertips, 
and you see a sign outside a church, for example, uh, here's one an example, serving Christ, serving others, okay? What does that feel like? How do you interpret that? What, what does that actually mean? At one level, it's, a, it's an honorable kind of motto to have because it's about putting Christ first and it's about serving others and loving them, but it could be heard in a different way. It could because the, the verb that's used is service, right? So in other words, the, the predominant form of Christian expression in that particular community is to be constantly serving. It's not, a, not, not necessarily about relating, or forming genuine intimate friendships. It's all about serving and serving can be, uh, it can be a non-symmetrical form of relationship. There's, there's the giver and then there's the receiver, there's the recipient, there's the needy one and the one who has all the resources to do the serving. That can sound a bit exhausting. It can also sound a bit patronizing. And then if it's about serving Christ and serving others, then where do I fit into that? You know, my own personal needs, my own longings, my desires, my, my goals, my sense of identity, who on earth am I? Where does that fit into serving Christ, serving others? It's almost as if one's own exploration of myself is very much secondary, if not tertiary in that kind of, in that kind of community. And so it could be deeply off-putting to see a sign saying serving Christ others, serving others. Um, another one would be, um, we exist to make heaven more crowded. Now, what does that, what does that convey? It's, it, it conveys the message that my, this present life on earth is not what's important. It, what, ha what happens after you're dead is important. That's all that matters is to, is to uh, make sure that you, rescue as many people from hell before they die. Um, so questions of environmental concern, climate change, um, family breakdown, that's entirely secondary to evangelism and making people make a, a personal commitment of faith. So certain church mottos or mission statements can have the effect of being deeply off-putting. And, and I think the ones that are perhaps more ambiguous and less definite have more of a, a resonance with with these types of people so for example in my own diocese it's a, the motto is transforming community radiating christ now radiating has a nice feel to it it has a has a sense of the sun shining it has a sense of warmth and invitation and transforming community well transforming transformation can take a whole number of different expressions can't it and so there isn't one particular shape that transformation has to take so the, the, the more kind of mystical ambiguous mission statements i think are perhaps more appealing than the more more prescriptive ones i think what you've just said relates to one of the tensions that you identify in the book that Don was wrestle with. Um, be good to unpack those a little bit. One of those is, is mystery versus certainty, that sometimes churches are too focused on, on certainty and not engaging enough with the mystery that people find in their faith journey. Yeah, I, I suspect that the Dunwiths uh, 
are kind of people that move away a little bit from absolute insistence on certainty. I mean, one of the things we do in our book is to quote from Barbara Brown Taylor, who used to be a, an Anglican minister in, in America, and then she eventually left her role as a parish priest and became a college lecturer. And uh, if I may quote something from her book, she says, um, she writes about the mysterious sacred power of beholding the parts of the Christian story that had drawn me into the church were not the believing parts, but the beholding parts. And she quotes, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it's that sense of uh, an invitation to look at something that is awesome and something sacred and something beautiful and to formulate your own uh, response to that, that beholding, that sense of almost ineffable um, experience that can't be put into a box, that can't be categorized, that can't be packaged neatly in, a, in some kind of doctrinal parameters. And I think the Dunwiths are looking for that kind of sense of awe and mystery that um, is almost beyond words. It's, 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 it's a way of saying, can I find God in the most surprising places? Can I, can I experience some kind of transcendence when I'm walking the dog? when I'm having my breakfast, as well as when I'm taking the Eucharist. You know, there are, there's a sacredness everywhere, and I want to be able to experience that sacredness at any moment, in any place. And I think the, some churches um, might have a greater insistence on absolute certainty, you know, ticking the boxes, conforming to a particular set of rules or a particular set of beliefs and that has the effect of excluding those who are not sure you know um, my experience as a minister is people who are exploring faith they tiptoe towards it they just put their toe in the water and they ask the odd question and they they're not sure whether they believe that or they don't believe that. And they, they want to be given the space and the permission to, to do that without being judged and without being um, deemed a, a kind of lesser, a lesser person. I mean, another tension, which is actually in the extract we're running is, is belonging versus detachment. Yes. Well, belonging is a, is a really important issue in life, isn't it? You know, you belong to a family, you belong to, uh, various different groups of people that we're, we're, we're made in the image of God in order to belong. You know, this is a primary psychological need to form an attachment. This is what we do with our, our parents and our caregivers. We, we have to belong. We can't, we can't be free-floating. But belonging to a church, a local church, is a free choice. You know, we can choose not to belong. And there are different levels of belonging, different ways of belonging. So in some churches, the, the, the Donmouths found that, you know, in order to be, to fully be regarded as belonging to the church, you have to uh, take out a monthly standing order. Uh, you have to conform to a particular set of doctrinal beliefs. You have to join a small midweek group. You have to attend every single Sunday. 
um, you have to do X, Y, Z. You know, these, these are the list of performances you have to, to tick off in order to be seen to belong. So it's a kind of conditional form of belonging. And that may be right for some people at some points in their lives to have that expression of belonging because it's, you're held by that community um, and you're valued by that community if you conform. But if you over time feel you don't want to do that anymore, you don't want to belong in that manner, you might want to loosen your detachment to that particular church and find maybe a, another way of belonging that isn't quite so demanding, that is a bit freer, that is a little bit looser at the edges. And um, that's why I think some of these dispersed communities, um, like I've mentioned before, the Northumbria community, allow for that. Um, and certainly my, my research into the Northumbria community have said they've just got two, two rules to follow. One is availability towards others, and one is vulnerability. And um, those two words, availability and vulnerability, don't prescribe a certain a particular set of actions. All they do is suggest this is the way in which we relate to each other. We make ourselves available and we make ourselves vulnerable. Um, and that's a completely different way of belonging and other dispersed communities have other rules of life that are, are framed in that kind of way. So the Dunwiths have detached themselves from a one form of belonging. And I think they are trying to establish a different form of belonging, whether it's a local group of like-minded people or whether it's joining a more national organization. But um, I think they still wish to belong, but they wish to belong in a different way. And does that mean that most of them don't return to parish churches or, or regular forms of church because they find that belonging elsewhere? Or do some miss the form of belonging they once had and return? Well, in our interviews, in the research interviews, none of them said that they wanted, in the near future at least, to run to belonging to a parish church. Um, that wasn't on their agenda. They'd, they'd been through that process. They'd chosen to leave. So that, that wasn't something it wasn't something that they were intending to do in the next few years. It was it was more of an open-ended decision. We, you know, we've chosen to leave and we don't know where this journey is going to take us. We don't know where this is going to lead. It may lead at some point in a few years' time to us returning to a parish, a parish church, and it may not. And it's okay to leave that question unanswered. So that's most that's where most of them find find themselves. What can the church learn from the Dunwiths? I mean, there's a lot of anxiety about attendance statistics and growth. And I think a lot of clergy feel pressure to grow numbers. Should, should this research make them think differently about that? I think it should. Yes, I think, I think one, I mean, Jesus said, didn't Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. There's a, understandable reflex action amongst the institutional church to seek first the survival of the church and then hope all things will be added unto you. And that's a significant shift of emphasis that if, if, the, if the main priority is, is 
the survival of the institutional church, then we've missed the point because it's not about that. And it may be necessary sometimes for some churches to die. That may be exactly what is the right thing to do. And over church history, that has happened. And um, we maybe need to allow that to happen. I remember years ago, the vineyard movement with John Wimber, I don't know whether you go back to the 1980s when the vineyard movement was exploding and there's churches all over the place and this is kind of the most, in a sense, successful expression of church. And I think John Wimber once said that he had a word from God, which was the vineyard movement must die because if you're obsessed with the success of the vineyard movement, you've actually lost focus on seeking first the kingdom of God. And I think it's an understandable temptation from the church to want to ensure its own survival. But I think that's a danger because I think then we become obsessed with our own human institutions and we perhaps need to allow other God-given forms of church expression to emerge naturally. I think in the last chapter of the book, we talked about you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. You know, you go through stages of grief in bereavement from, you know, anger and um, disbelief and uh, bargaining. And um, eventually you get to a point of, of acceptance. And I think that maybe for people who leave church, it, the process is similarly bumpy. There's, you know, there's a stage of anger, there's a stage of frustration, there's a stage of grief. You've lost a community of people that you used to belong to. Maybe a sense of guilt. There may be a sense of relief. Thank goodness, this hamster wheel. We've got off the wheel. You know, we're in a different place now. And eventually they come to a place of peace and acceptance. So you know, the process of leaving church can, can follow that rather bumpy pattern, I think. And that's okay. But I think what we hope to do in the book was not to portray you know, the church in a negative light. Um, because the church, after all, is full of broken people, and wounded people, and people who hang on to the church because it has you know, hugely significant symbolic memories for them. Um, but it's just to say that we can learn from people when we listen to them. And the people who leave church aren't just, aren't, they aren't the troublemakers, they aren't the renegades, they aren't the, you know, the atheists. They're just people who are struggling with life and struggling with faith and trying to put those two together and to find a way of holding that, that makes sense where they're at in their stage of life. And we, we do well to listen to them and to, to treat them with the greatest of respect. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds.
Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.